Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to Conversations with the Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today will be the first of two podcasts on the topic that we are all thinking about day and night, the coronavirus. Today's topic is going to be how will the COVID-19 testing shape our lives going forward and which are the best tests to have done? Testing, testing, testing. This seems to be the mantra we just keep on hearing on the news. Once testing is available for the COVID-19 virus, we can hopefully all make plans based on who is immune to resume some type of semblance of a normal life. However, there's a big if. Reliable testing is going to be the critical factor for this to happen. And unfortunately, just yesterday, the New York Times reported that 11 of the 14 antibody tests were unreliable, and we'll get into that according to the researchers. And this is really quite alarming. The questions that testing will need to answer are, one, who is contagious? Two, does a person have immunity or protection to the virus? And three, what does this all mean when when children will be able to go back to school and adults go back to work? I'm hoping my guest today will be able to shed some light on some of these difficult questions. He is Dr. Irving Nishamkin, Professor of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the Director of the Division of Laboratory Medicine there, and he's also the Associate Director of Clinical Microbiology and the Lab Director of UPenn's Perelman School of Medicine. So he's obviously got a lot of responsibility over there. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Nishampkin to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dean. My pleasure. I'm really excited to talk to you. As you know, really, all of a sudden, laboratory science is the, the hot, sexy topic in medicine today. You know, just so you know, my background, you know, I trained in immunology, infectious disease, and allergy in New York through Columbia. And I've always loved immunology. And I love actually, believe it or not, laboratory testing. To me, it was always part of the detective work, but now it's not as cut and dry as straightforward as people in the public like to think. So I want to get into some of your thoughts. And one of the things that actually connected me to you, I was going through and myself trying to get as much information on the testing. And I saw uh, a post that you put on your site that said, are we ready for serological you know, testing? during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And um, as I just mentioned in the lead-in, you know, the New York Times article talked about false positives for antibody testing. So what I want to just start off asking you in general, you know, is perfect the, in a sense, the evil of good, you know, or good enough under these circumstances? Because I, I was looking through the article yesterday and they were, they were reporting a false positive, which is never great, but you know, where you have a test that's positive when the patient really is not, the person is not really infected at 5%. Is that so out of range to get, you know, reliable testing? Well, it's a really good question. 
and there's a lot of nuance to the answer. Mm. And, and that's because it really depends on what you're going to use the antibody test for. And that really drives how well the performance characteristics need to be. And when we talked about performance characteristics of a test, uh, that's sensitivity, specificity, and most importantly, the positive predictive value. Right. So for antibody tests, the, uh, the current available tests test for an immune response to the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, if you detect antibodies, that essentially means that you've been exposed uh, at some point. It doesn't tell you that you're actively infected. You may have been exposed in the past. It doesn't tell you that you're infectious or not infectious. It's just, it's an indication of exposure. And the current tests don't tell you whether you're immune to reinfection with the virus. Yeah, I know that's probably, I'm gonna sometimes jump right. in a little bit because you're, you're saying really important things. And I want the listeners who, again, really confused by everything they're hearing, sometimes try to you know get it in late terms also. So, I mean, obviously what you're essentially saying is that these tests, and what's alarming is that I, I saw on TV last night too, that they're going to have these home kits. And I think what's very important, I just want to jump in here and say is that, you know, good medicine goes along with good combining good history, clinical assessment with confirming a blood test and just, or, you know, or a, a nasal swab. It, it's so important to, you know, to have a, a doctor, a, a well-trained you know, nurse can explain and get that information because a test alone can, in the wrong context, be misleading. And I think what you're saying also, we're going to get into some really specifics a little bit because I think it is important for the listeners to hear that, again, a lot of these tests that are coming out very quickly are the antibody tests, which just show that you've had what we call an immune response, but doesn't necessarily mean, and we're going to get into this, that you're immune protected. And that's of course what everybody wants because, you know, again, you know, the simplistic thinking is, oh gosh, I have antibodies, I'm protected. I can go back out there and don't even have to worry about social distancing. Would you agree with that? That's absolutely correct. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation about these antibody tests. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we can dispel some of the misinformation today about them. Yeah, no, we're going to definitely try to do that. So what I want to get into, and again, for the, anyone listening to this podcast, I'll recommend if you get a chance, after you can go to my website, which we're going to get up hopefully this week at Mitchell Medical Group. I'm going to put up some graphs that I think they're very colorful, so they're kind of easy to see. Because I, I know when I do presentations, I like things that are very easy and very visual. And there is a graph that I found in one of uh, my articles I thought was so important. And Dr. Nishamkin, I'm going to ask you a little bit to do some translating for us, you know, and I'll ask some specific questions. So we now know that patients can be infected with the virus and be asymptomatic. So that's been the biggest scare for everyone. You could be around somebody who looks fine and they could be infected. And what essentially is happening is that at this point, the virus has infected 
like mucous membranes in the nose and the throat. And Dr. Shanklin, this is what I'm going to ask you. So what starts to go up initially is what's called the viral RNA. And again, for the listeners, this virus is what's called an RNA virus. There are DNA viruses and there are RNA viruses. And essentially the virus has this RNA and has like a, what they call a, a, like a little covering of lipid over it. And that's what a virus is. So this starts to go up and build up in the nose over, you know, a period of within like, you know, four or five days, starts to build up. It reaches probably a crescendo, uh, according to this graph, at about roughly about seven to 11 days. And then over time, slowly starts to go down. Other things start to happen. So that's not the end of the story, but that's the the way the virus sort of takes over and goes through. So Dr. Nishampin, I want to ask you, before we get into the testing, the this virus building up, I, myself, I was a little confused about this, the whole idea of intact virus versus viral shedding. Can you explain that a little bit to me and, and how the testing might give us information about that? Well, it's a, it's a difficult question to, to answer. Okay. When somebody's exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, initially from somebody who's symptomatic, the virus attaches and gets into their different respiratory cells. That could be in the, in the nose, the nasopharynx, the respiratory tract, and it starts to replicate. And this is live virus, and it's infectious virus. That means that you can take a sample and culture the virus in the laboratory. And as you mentioned, the viral load, the concentration of the virus in the respiratory tract gets extremely high. And it's thought that because there's such high levels of virus in the respiratory tract is why it's so transmissible. About two to three or four days before you become symptomatic, you have very high viral loads in your respiratory tract. And that's when people are exposed to somebody who's asymptomatic. This is the the scariest aspect of the disease because you don't know who's got this virus in their respiratory tract. So once you're infected and you develop uh, the symptoms, when you get better and recover from the disease, you may continue to have the virus in your respiratory tract. And that's called viral shedding. That means it's, it's there, but you feel fine. Okay. And that's because the, the virus can just persist in the face of a good immune response and just kind of sit there and yeah, not right. do anything. Yeah. The question becomes... Is that virus that's just sitting there, is it infectious or not? Right. That's what we really want to know, especially right. with testing. That's, that's such a key point for everybody listening. So I, I'm on the edge of my seat. I want to hear your, your answer because I have my, my question on this. Go ahead. So in some cases, after you recover, the virus becomes inactive, and it's just the nucleic acid, the RNA, that's just hanging around being cleared by your body. And those are not infectious components of the virus. You can't culture it. 
And at that point, you would not be infectious. On the other hand, you may have the virus after recovering, and it still may be a live virus. And so you continue to shed it and be able to transmit it to others. And this is the the quandary that uh, we're in, is that we don't know who is infectious and who is not after recovery from COVID-19, even though we may be able to detect it by a laboratory test. You know, you just clarified something for me really well that I, I think, you know, when I'm looking at this graph, because again, when listeners, if they get a chance to see this graph, so important, it shows sort of a, uh, what we, I guess we'd call a, um, a mountain shaped curve skewed to the right, meaning that, you know, you get, you get these viral titers going up in your, in your nose when you've been exposed to somebody that has an active uh, COVID-19 infection. And then the, the slope of this curve you know, to the right starts to slowly go, gradually go down like a nice smooth skiing thing. The viral culture, which you were just talking about to find out, is a little more of a steep curve, I meaning it goes up. And then again, it looks like it peters out at, by about the third week. So again, that's why I guess where a lot of them are, the clinicians are saying after about three weeks, hopefully you have no symptoms, you are not infectious. But the question really is, is, you know, how confident are we with that? But the question I want to ask you, because this is, again, has to do with the testing that we're talking about today. So, you know, when we've just said that a lot of these nasal swab tests that check for the, I guess, nucleic acid and viral RNA, you could do that. Let's say, again, we want to do mass testing. I mean, whether they're doing it in pharmacies and doctor's offices, you know, people may be coming in and, you know, they may, again, I can even see Amazon doing this. You know, they're, Dr. Jeff Bezos is pretty aggressive. He might be saying every person walking in that door today at Amazon warehouse, we're going to do a, a point of care, a nasal swab and see if you're a positive. My question again, just to clarify for you is, so again, if somebody really is asymptomatic, but actually infectious, hopefully we should pick that up. But what's going to happen if someone supposedly was infected a month before, or five weeks before, yet they still have some uh, RNA in their nose, will they be positive also on this point of care nasal swab test? Well, they might. And that's- That's where history is important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's right. And, and this is part of the diagnostic and testing problems about, you know, how do we get people back to work? A recent- a recommendation from the Pennsylvania Department of Health, for example, about uh, healthcare workers going back to work, basically said that a healthcare worker who developed COVID-19 has to get better. So once they've resolved all their symptoms, that means no fever, no cough, no tightness of their chest, no other you know, flu-like symptoms. Uh, once they've resolved those symptoms, they have to have two negative virus tests within 24 hours apart to be confident that they're virus negative and can go back to work. Well, that's tricky because that, that's probably two things I see tricky. That could be at least you know, three weeks because, yeah, that's, first of all, it's a lot of testing and you can obviously, like you said too, the person just could have 
essentially inactive virus and still be testing positive, that will hold them back from going to work. The other issue too, I just have to bring up as a clinician, I mean, I'm hearing more and more of this. Some people are having lingering symptoms. You know, it's not like they, you know, just go through this for two or three weeks and they feel fine. I mean, we're hearing reports, people having a little more chronic headaches and issues like that. So, um, but I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, so it's a complicated um, algorithm, if you will, yeah, uh, for just deciding as to who goes back. Now, what you, what you hope is that, you know, 90% or 95% of the people that develop the illness that get better become test negative at, you know, several weeks after they're, they've um, uh, resolved their infection and can go back to work. But it's a tail. It's not an all or none. And that means it could be 5 or 10% of those people. Right be persistently positive for a while. And, and we know this from other infections is that the nucleic acids from bacteria and viruses are detectable well after somebody resolves infection. So this is not a new concept for this type of molecular testing. And it's gonna take some, uh, some close clinical studies to really look at this group of individuals to say, are they really infectious or not? Yeah, I think so. I think what you're really saying, where we're coming, this is not going to be a cut and dry thing by any means. That's correct. You're really going to, and that's why, the, the, I mean, I understand that the government officials, you know, they want, we just want the tests, you know, it's black or white. It's not going to be that way. And that's okay. That's what we have doctors and healthcare providers and experts to help guide us. I'm just curious, so this is such an unusual situation. Would this differ in any which way from if somebody had influenza? Because we never really took such precautions. You know, I mean, people could have the flu and they were back at work, you know, 10 days later once some of their symptoms resolved, but potentially give it to other coworkers. Am I correct? While somebody has influenza and is actively, you know, has uh, signs and symptoms of infection, they're infectious. And so they're producing virus, it's, it's infectious virus and can transmit it. But we know that people that recover from influenza become immune to it. And from at least that particular strain, they stop excreting virus. You can detect it for just a very short period. And then they're fine to go back to work and they're not infectious. So it's a little different type of virus than the SARS-CoV-2 virus in that regard. Well, because you're saying that we that essentially with influenza, when your symptoms resolve, you're no longer excreting virus. And here, we just don't know if you're still excreting virus or? Correct. Okay. But if that is the case, that would be a good thing because, you know, if it, if it tends to mirror influenza, then at least we have a better idea. You know, again, people who have been recovering, and again, even if they have a positive test, because that's what's coming up, people are getting afraid, they're saying, oh my gosh, this person was tested now like five weeks, six weeks later, they're better, but they're still testing positive. But it, it sounds like it's making like they're infected when they really might not be. That's the big question is, are yeah. they infectious? Okay. All right. Now I want to kind of zoom into a little bit more about all these tests. And I, one of the things, again, you wrote in your article, I'm just hit a couple of points on this. And just to see what you think, because are you concerned 
and I, that there are just no guidelines or recommendations for clinicians on how to interpret these tests. I, I've seen a, I've actually seen a couple of, from some societies, you know, some generalized things, but essentially there, there really are no, you know, hard and fast guidelines from the government saying, okay, if you have this positive nucleic acid test, you have this positive antibody test, IgM or IgG, this is what you should do. Is that what worries you? Well, we know a lot more about the virus testing. These are the nucleic acid tests and how to interpret them and their limitations from CDC or local health officials. But we have absolutely no guidelines about antibody testing from any agency. And that includes international agencies like the WHO. They just came out with a report last week that said, we don't know how to interpret antibody tests or what they mean, other than you've been exposed to the virus at some point. The FDA doesn't know how to interpret them. The CDC doesn't know how to interpret them. Our state departments of health do not know how to interpret the antibody tests. So that sounds nobody, <laughs> it, well, what's alarming is that there was this rush to allow companies to market these antibody tests with no information as to what they mean or how to interpret them. Well, and yeah, I've, been very, I've been very critical of the yeah. FDA for allowing this to happen. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, though, too. As I said, I, I love immunology and I and it obviously involves so much infectious disease. But to be honest, too, you know, there are, you know, serology tests I get for Lyme disease or Epstein-Barr, and they don't really have guidelines or recommendations for those tests that I'm aware of. I mean, I mean, I know for Lyme, they have a certain amount of bands, you know, on the thing, but it really, again, I think falls to the clinician to use that, again, as just another um, component in making a diagnosis on a patient. Wouldn't you, would you agree on that or no? Well, well I, I do in some regard, and uh, let's use the Lyme disease example. Okay. So what we know is that people that have Lyme disease develop antibodies against the organism. So as a clinician, if you see a patient who has signs and symptoms and the exposures that would put them at risk for Lyme disease, but you're not quite sure. An antibody test is going to help you make that diagnosis. It's not a diagnostic test, but basically what it says is, yes, I think they have Lyme disease. They've made antibodies to the organism and putting that all together allows me to make that diagnosis. And that's different though than the COVID-19 antibody test. In somebody who's symptomatic with the signs and symptoms of this virus, they say they come into your hospital or your clinic and you have a virus test, a nucleic acid test to make that diagnosis. So if you detect the virus, that confirms that's what they have. Right. The antibody test doesn't tell you that. All the antibody test does is tell you, yeah, they've been exposed, maybe recently, maybe a month or two ago, but it 
It doesn't tell you anything more than that. So, well, and that's the difference between this infection and say Lyme disease, where the antibody test is helpful. You don't have a direct test to detect the organism in Lyme disease for the most part. Right. Yeah, it's very true. But for this the, one, you have a you have a, right. a direct nucleic acid test. So yes, there, it's really a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I, I didn't want to just. I didn't want to con confuse the issue. You know, I do want to jump in on something now too because you brought this up. So again, this would be very relevant for any of the listeners because again, these tests are available. We'll get into more issues about the testing. But what you just mentioned, that you know, again. When people are getting these kits, I'm getting actually in my office this week. So I'm curious and I'll be doing some of the testing and gathering very a lot of clinical data. But again, I, from what I'm hearing, even pharmacy is going to get this testing. Now, the patients will see with the antibody testing, there's going to be three lines. There's going to essentially be the negative control line. There's going to be the line for something called M, which stands for IgM, which is, you know, we know in immunology is the immediate antibody when you're exposed to an infection that goes up because your body's mounting the initial immune response. And this usually happens or peaks within seven days and then slowly over a period of maybe another 20 days or so goes down. The other line on these uh, antibody tests is it will say G, which stands for IgG. We tend to like to think of it as the good antibody that develops and peaks slower, typically at uh, around uh, three weeks after the infection and then slowly will go down and sometimes plateau. So what's your feeling about these tests? You know, you mentioned about lack standards. I mean, you know, you assume a company, let's just hope, especially in the United States, makes a test, the way they make pregnancy test kits and strep kits. Why, why are you worried that this is so difficult that, because they rush this, that the standards might be lax or the information not valid? Well, there are really two issues. One is normally companies have to provide the validation data that shows that their test meets certain performance criteria. Under normal circumstances, the companies have to provide that data to the FDA for review before they're allowed to market their tests. And there are different ways in which the FDA does reviews and, and gives uh, clearance or approval of tests. For the molecular tests, the ones that detect the virus, the FDA requires that a company must submit an application with their data to the FDA for review and it's under something called the Emergency Use Authorization, the EUA. Right. And that's all the molecular tests that are out there have undergone at least a, perhaps a quick review, but at least a review by the FDA. For the antibody test, the FDA essentially waived any requirement to submit an application to them for review. So it's only a voluntary application. So right now, as I think as of today, there may only be four or five companies that have submitted a emergency use authorization application for their antibody test. But the other 100 companies that have marketed their tests have under have not 
submitted anything to the FDA, nor have provided any data to them. And this is why there are so many tests out there that were rushed to market. And we know from several studies now that have evaluated, you know, half a dozen, a dozen of the products that they're not all that good. Some of them seem to be pretty good and, and correlate with some reference antibody tests, but others have very poor uh, testing characteristics. So how am I, you know, as I said, I, I practice clinical immunology in Manhattan, the epicenter of, uh, <laughs> of this virus. And I just ordered the, um, a point of care test for antibodies from this place called BioLabs. Got to put people on the spot here. They supposedly are making this in Arizona, California, not China, whether that matters or not. I'm going to ask you about that. And some tests are made in South Korea. How do I know as a clinician, you know, and I like to do my due diligence that I have a good test um, and how much information can I actually get? Or am I just getting it from the company itself? Is there any other way, you know, for doctors around the country to, have more confidence that they have a good test? Well, it's a really good concern. You don't. Yeah, the only thing that you have is uh, the package insert that comes with the product from the company. They may have put some of their validation data into the package at the end of the package insert. But frankly, uh, some of these companies have tested so few samples to be able to say that they're reliable based on a very small validation study is very concerning. What would you, you know, you, again, you, this is your expertise. What, yes. what would make you feel better if a thousand tests have been done? I mean, I know 10,000 would be great, but what, what would be, I mean, if you heard, if I heard, you know, they did 20 tests and they got, they got this emergency use approval, I would be concerned, but. Exactly. Uh, well, there's no magic number. But what you would like is for the company to have tested, say, a few hundred samples from patients with documented COVID-19 infections, and many more than a few hundred samples from patients who have never had the infection. A good way to do that would be to look at patient samples from last year say from 2019, who did not, uh, this is before the COVID-19 outbreak, and test two, three, 400 of those samples in their test to see what the false positivity rate is. Well, that gets back to this New York Times article. I, I, I want yes. to just go back to this for a second too, because I really like to make it clear for the listeners. So, you know, in the New York Times article, it was on Sunday, actually, and they actually quoted one of your colleagues, Scott Hensley. From yes. Penn, right. But what they did was it was interesting that they got also a lot of these top experts, you know, they, and they apparently like really locked them up and had them working around the clock in the San Francisco area. And then in Harvard, uh, you know, one of them was Dr. Alexander Marston, and they had them push the, uh, the pedal to the metal and intensively studying all of these tests to see how accurate they could be, because obviously everybody's really concerned. But again, not that it wasn't perfect, but the, but the headline to me was misleading because, okay, 11 of the, of the 14 antibody tests, were, well, they're calling it unreliable, but going back to what I asked you originally, 
In one case, it was 5%, another one 11 to 16%, which again, I know is not perfect, but it's still still not terrible. And well, that's... I, I would I, I would disagree with that. Right. And the okay. reason the, the reason is is that when you have a disease whose prevalence is say five percent of the population, and you have a false positive rate of five percent, you're going to have the ability of that test to say that your patient has been exposed is going to have more false positive indications than true positives. And that's, oh, that's the problem. problem. Yeah. That's the problem is it's not that when you look at the actual specificity numbers, it doesn't sound that bad, but it has to be put into context is how are you going to interpret it? And it makes it very difficult to interpret a test when it's more likely to be falsely positive due to a cross reaction with something else than with the virus itself. And that's why there's so much concern about these antibody tests is that the ability to predict a true positive really falls apart in low prevalence populations. And that's where, and that's where these tests are going to be used is for mass screening of asymptomatic people out in the community. Yeah. And where the prevalence is really still low, maybe right. large numbers nationwide, but in terms of the percent of the population, it's a small percent. Well, you, know, can you bring up great points. You explain what I read in the paper much better. This is where hopefully a podcast like this, it really brings things to life because I, I, I didn't really understand that as well, but you made it clear. But let's just say, but in New York, where they're saying New York City, for example, where they're saying, you know, the, the prevalence could be 20, as high as 21% with the test still being at 5% off. Is that still good enough? Well, I'd have to calculate it. Right. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but... Um, <laughs> That's probably not good enough for no. even at a, at a twenty percent prevalence rate. Well, that's the that's the kind of guidelines we're going to need because, we, like, right. yeah, what we're saying is it's different going to be different in Minnesota and Nebraska, right? Well, how accurate or healthy these tests are going to be compared to New York City. But another thing I want to ask you too, because it's really important. How about though? I mean, again, in this, you know, this is really a, a wartime kind of situation that we're in, and and things have to be done. But how about the what I would say, what I would call the combination of all these things. I mean, in a patient, you know, or the public, you're doing the rapid test, you know, for the nucleic acid to see if they have the RNA in the nose, you know, the swab, the point of care test, you know, to see if they have antibodies. And then if it's not really clear, send, which I was going to get to, send to the, the laboratories, you know, the ones like that you have at Penn or here in New York at Mount Sinai where they're, you know, they're doing more complex testing, you know, with, I guess, ELISA testing or what's called neutralizing antibody testing because we can't massively do all these kind of tests for the public. That's going to be, I would think, impossible. But at least doctors with their discretion could say, you know what, I think uh, a patient, if he has, you know, quote, uh, you know, uh, I'm concerned, there's like conflicting information here. They have a positive antibody test 
but it's like five weeks already and they still have a positive nucleic acid, one of the rapid nasal swab tests. I should send it to Dr. Nishamkin or Dr. Florian Kramer in Mount Sinai and have more testing done to see, I guess, if there's neutralizing antibodies. Would that be reasonable for clinicians? Um, it might be. There may be a role for uh, combination testing. So one scenario, kind of similar to what you were just suggesting, would be, say, somebody who's got signs and symptoms of COVID-19, maybe they're milder, their nucleic acid test is negative. We know that the ability of the nucleic acid test to detect infection is not 100%. They may be falsely negative, and it may take a couple of tries uh, to detect the virus. But let's just say it's a week or 10 days after the development of symptoms, and the first nucleic acid test is negative, but the antibody test is positive at that time. That might be good evidence that that's what the patient has. And meaning they, what? That they're, that they're protected? That they no, no, that they're actually, they actively have a COVID 19 infection. And the reason why is that as you develop antibodies uh, early on, you're still virus positive. Again, we don't know what those antibodies mean, but if you're using it as a, to help in the aid of the diagnosis, that might be helpful. What it doesn't tell you is whether or not those antibodies are protective. And this has been the whole crux of the antibody controversy is when you detect them, uh, especially after you've resolved the infection, does it mean that you're immune? We don't know that yet. So there may be a, uh, I know there's one company uh, that I heard about on a, on a television broadcast that is making a, a test that at the same time detects antibody and the virus uh, in the same test. And oh, wow. uh, I think it's an interesting concept because there may be this window where you can't detect the virus initially, maybe you had a poor sample for testing, but the antibody's positive, and that may be helpful in saying, yes, in a symptomatic patient, this uh, helps to establish the diagnosis. How would you have an antibody before that would even pick up the, the virus antigen, right? Because the, the antibody is, re is typically responding to... Right. Uh, well, there's a good explanation for that. And one is that we know that the, the nasal swab, the nasopharyngeal swab that we use for testing, right. probably only about 80% sensitive. That means eight out of uh, 10, they'll pick up. Eight, eight out of 10 will be positive. And that's because of the sample itself. I mean, the, the clinician didn't do a uh, didn't sample it properly? It wasn't sampled properly. They didn't get far enough back in the nasal pharynx. Maybe in that particular patient, the viral load was low. Not everybody has a high viral load. 
So uh, there are lots of different issues, but we, we know that a single sample uh, may only be around 80%. So the question is, okay, in somebody with signs and symptoms of COVID-19, what else can you do to diagnose that? Well, as you mentioned earlier, after you become symptomatic, you start to make antibodies and you can detect those antibodies well before the virus is cleared from your system. And so it's a marker that you're making a response, but it's not necessarily clearing the virus. And that's how you can explain detecting antibodies early in the infection at the same time that you're still actively excreting the virus. Mm. Yeah, you know, one of the points I like to try to sometimes make to patients or even other clinicians or medical students when I'm teaching them, and I'm just curious if you agree with my thinking on this, you know, when I think about antibodies, I always make the example, I like to think of them as like, you know, when people like, you know, they, they gain paintballs, you know, antibodies, essentially, they detect a foreign substance, essentially, you know, a virus, a bacteria, but they essentially just like paint it or put a, like a target on its back. And then it's really the rest of the immune system that the, the killer cells, certain T cells, complement, you know, you know, all those things go in and then finish off the job. I mean, it's not that like antibodies kill a virus. They just, as I said, try to, you know, just put a target on its back. Would you agree with that? In part, I'd agree with that. I mean, antibodies play a role in clearance of viruses, uh, protecting the virus from getting into cells. They can block viral entry. But you're absolutely correct is that there's this cellular immune response that works in concert with the antibody response to clear viral infections. The perfect antibody test, however, would be one that detects the antibody that is the one that neutralizes the virus. Those are the ones that are most likely to play an important role in protection and immunity. And that's what people are looking for right now as to what antibodies are, are protective and how do we detect them so that uh, if we do test people for antibodies, we'll be able to say with some confidence that, yes, you have immunity to this infection. And with that type of test, then you now have something to work with in terms of getting people back to work or being able to go out and say that uh, I'm somewhat protected against getting infection. We're not there yet. Yeah, now that leads me to a great point that I want to bring out. I, I saw this actually in the New York Times and it was taken from an article in Nature by uh, Dr. Uh, Fan Wu. And it was interesting. It showed the numerous proteins that the coronavirus has the one the classic one we all hear about this spike protein protein s which i assume a lot of the tests are being made uh in response to but there are numerous other ones i mean there are you know accessory proteins and nucleocapsid proteins and and they give you know names to all these do you think this is going to be really critical in eventually in, in us being able to determine you know, where, where the antibody is responding to one of these particular proteins. And especially, um, again, I, you know, I, I can't see, but that certain test kits, we don't, you know, I, I assume a lot of them are probably doing to this spike protein. I think I was looking this up and some of them to the nucleic acid protein. Do you think it, 
does it matter at this point in your mind which you know which protein they're using to be, to get this antibody response? Well, it depends on what kind of information you're trying to get. If the question is, has my patient been exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus? then it may not matter whether or not you're detecting antibodies against the spike protein or the nucleocapsid, as long as those antibodies that are being detected are specific to that, to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and not other coronaviruses or you know, other non-coronaviruses. If the question is, are the antibodies we are detecting protective, then the target for those assays does make a difference. And we know that there's a something called the receptor uh, binding domain. It's a little part of the spike protein that seems to be actively involved with the binding of the virus to the respiratory cell receptor. And there's a very specific region in that receptor binding domain that is probably the, if you have an antibody against it, would be neutralizing. And so in that regard, which antigen is used in the antibody assay may make a difference. But again, it depends on, you know, what kind of information you're trying to, to, to okay. get from it. Okay. Wow. This was really a lot of good information. I, I've learned a lot. So, Dr. Nishapian, in sort of uh, winding down, I want to ask you, where do you see us going from here? What would be, if you were put in charge, you get the call from the White House, Dr. Champion, we need you to help set up a program. How are we going to monitor the public to mitigate this horrendous pandemic and allow us to some degree to resume social interaction? Big question. How would, uh, what's your approach to this? Well, it, it is a big question. and. And the, the big answer is we need to put the big T in testing. And when I say testing, that's both uh, virus testing, the molecular tests, and the antibody tests. We're going to need to be able to test nearly everyone for the presence of active virus before they're, and this is whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic, before they can go back to, before they can go to work uh, and, and for companies to open up. Because we know that there are so many asymptomatic people out there, we're gonna need to have really good uh, rapid molecular tests to test essentially everyone. And that means orders of magnitude over the number of tests that are available today. Do you think we're up for it? We need the, do, you think, do you think our country uh, can do this? Uh, well, the companies that are making the molecular tests are really ramping up big time. And it's taken them you know, quite a while to get to the point where there's, there are many more tests available in laboratories than there was at the beginning of March. However, um, many, many laboratories are still struggling to get test kits uh, in their laboratories. Uh, I know we're having, you know, we have labs in Philadelphia that, that have very little uh, tests available uh, to them. So there's a long way to go before the 
production uh, gets to a point where there could be widespread molecular testing. On the other hand, the antibody tests, which I don't think are of, of great value as a diagnostic test, but from a public health point of view, are incredibly important because it's going to tell us about uh, the spread of the virus in the communities. And this is what we call, you know, doing seroepidemiology is uh, testing people in the community to see if they have antibodies against the virus. That means they've been exposed right. and to tr be able to track that uh, by the public health community uh, to help control the spread of the virus throughout the community. So I think it's a combination of both that we're going to need. And we're not there yet. It's just uh, the, it's, it's going to probably be several more months before the big manufacturers can really get to a level that meets that need. And I'm afraid the small companies just, you know, they're not going to be able to, you know, produce the kinds of the volume of products that are really needed out there. You know, it's just interesting when listening to what you said, you know, because I saw, I was watching CNN and Sanjay Gupta was interviewing um, one of the people in the laboratory at uh, Emory. And um, he said something, I think a little bit similar to what you just said, that the antibody testing could be very important, obviously knowing the public spread of the disease. And the one possibly hopeful takeaway, which I, I still would like our listeners to, to take away when they leave, if they do get testing, is that if you do have an antibody, and again, this is not a, 100% certain, but it could be some peace of mind, meaning that you have been exposed and for whatever degree you recovered. So I think there is, again, some benefit in having that testing. I want to thank Dr. Nishampkin for coming on the podcast and taking the time to discuss this very important topic. If, if you have any more questions, please send them to my Facebook page at Dean Mitchell MD. I'm really excited too. We're going to be putting out the second podcast on coronavirus, all about some of the most exciting, interesting treatments uh, discussing with Dr. Paul Marek. So again, Dr. Shampton, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Dean. Uh, really appreciate having the opportunity to talk about this topic. And I'm very hopeful about the future. We just have to be very patient and you know, not rush back before we're ready. That's great advice. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.